Now, all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us that there were women who were followers of Jesus who went to the tomb that Easter Sunday and found it empty. And there's a great challenge for this to us in this claim. And Matthew says, you're looking for Jesus, the angel he is quoting. He says, but he's not here. He is risen. See the place he ought to be? He's not there. Now, there were dozens of messianic movements in Israel the decades before and decades following Jesus' life and death. And in almost every case, the messianic leader dies, and in many cases, they're executed. And every other movement after the death of their leader dies out. Everybody went home. That was it. Game over. Except with Jesus. He dies, and his followers claim that he was raised from the dead, and a worldwide movement was launched. Well, what was different? Why was this one messianic leader, why did the whole world change in his rather than the others? Well, the scriptures say, and the Christian church has proclaimed for 2,000 years that the reason it was different was that this messianic movement found after its leader was executed that he came back from the dead and appeared to nearly 500 of his followers. And as Matthew is writing, he's writing from source documents that were circulating that names these people and says, you want to believe this? Well, go ask these people. They're still alive, these eyewitnesses. That's one of the reasons he names these two Marys. That's what changed everything, why they didn't go home, why game wasn't over. Now fast forward 20 centuries to us, and maybe you find this story completely credible, or maybe you're here because an in-towner has been inviting you for many years, and you, you finally caved, and so you're sitting here uncomfortably. We hope that it will be comfortable in the right ways. Or maybe you're here for an interesting cultural experience, or maybe you grew up, to, grew up in church, but you've long since left, and being here is part of this sort of religious hangover. And we think, well, of course it's not literally true. It's a great metaphor, it's a great story, it's a great illustration. But Matthew and all of the gospel writers and the rest of the Bible challenge this, of course, They challenge this, of course, sort of thinking. Of course, it couldn't be literally true. Matthew challenges our bias. He challenges us to look again at the evidence. Matthew challenges the sort of chronological snobbery that says that, well, these people that wrote these stories, they were primitive people. They believed in myths and legends, and so, of course, they would have believed this story. It was easy for them to believe. But just as our worldview often prevents us from looking at the facts, and considering them credible. So would Matthew's readers' worldview have prevented them from believing. Matthew says in his gospel three times that Jesus predicted his death and then predicted that he would rise again on the third day. Three times just in the book of Matthew. So more than likely, these disciples had heard it more and more, more times than that. And where are his male disciples on the third day? Nowhere to be found. A few female disciples are here, but we know from the other Gospels that they had brought perfumes and spices to anoint the body. They expected him to be just as dead on day three as he was on day one. Jesus says, I'm going to rise on the third day. And not one person thinks, huh, it's the third day. Well, you know, because they all have watches in the first century. They look, 
huh, it's the third day. Maybe we ought to go take a look. Nobody was expecting this, not even his followers. In the Greek worldview, resurrection was something that liberated you from the body. So it would be preposterous to think that someone would be resurrected in the body, in the flesh. The goal of philosophy is to separate those, those two things. And Jesus is raised in the flesh. So certainly they wouldn't have believed it. The Jewish people would have disbelieved it for another reason. Their worldview included an idea of resurrection, but it was a future resurrection and a general resurrection of all people, all followers of God, of Yahweh, not an individual rising from the dead in the flesh at that time. They would have been the last people on the face of the earth to worship a human being in the flesh as Yahweh incarnate, as God incarnate. That concept would have been absolutely implausible. And so it's not just us in the 21st century that have difficulty believing this. This whole idea was completely inconceivable. And that's why when the Messianic people died out, their followers went home. Well, because this proves that this is not real. Jesus' followers are illuminated. They're animated. They go and tell the good news. Many of them did believe it. Why? Well, they let the evidence challenge their worldview. They let their experience of actually seeing the risen Christ challenge their biases and challenge what they think is possible. Because the counterproposals made even less sense, and they had the intellectual integrity to follow where the truth goes, to follow where the evidence leads. And then what if it is true? What if they do believe it? What if Jesus is resurrected? It's not just our worldview that's challenged, but then we're able to receive this enormous gift. The angel says to these women, then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. What does he not say? He doesn't say, you go tell those faithless, backstabbing cowards that they screwed up big time. And if they want Jesus to see them, they better be prepared to grovel. Now, this would be warranted, of course. Think of what Jesus has been through in the three days previous to this and the days leading up to it in Passion Week. While his friends, his most trusted disciples, scattered and fled and denied him. But he sends these women to invite these disciples to experience this gift of forgiveness. We often think, well, if you repent, then I'll forgive you. If then. But here, he's forgiving them before they repent. He's forgiving them so they can repent. And that's the gift of the resurrection. You see, notice he doesn't say Jesus is going to Galilee and he'll see you there. It sounds sort of like when you hear, well, the principal will see you now. It sounds sort of ominous. And they would have looked around at each other, well, I'm not going, are you going? Maybe you should go ahead and see what kind of mood he's in. Jesus rode us from the dead just like he told us, and now we're in for it. Jesus will see you now. You see, we often think that the love of God comes to those who get it right. That weakness and failure disrupts the flow of the power of God into your life. 
But you see, it's not, go to Galilee and there Jesus will see you. And he'll give you a chance to make amends. But it's go to Galilee and there you will see him. There you will see Jesus, the one you betrayed, with a great big smile on his face saying, see, I told you this was going to happen. See, it's true. And he begins to invite them in and laugh with them and eat with them again and rejoice with them over what has happened. We often think that when we mess up, God looks down at us from heaven and says, tsk, tsk, I'm so disappointed in you that you can't seem to get your act together. But here it seems the truth is closer to you've failed big time and now we have something to work with. You've blown it, and now you can understand this gift that I'm giving you. And you'll receive it as a gift, not as something that you need to work off, not as a debt. Now you can see yourself rightly, and now you're ready to receive my gift of salvation. You see, friends, God doesn't love us if and when we change. But you see, God takes the initiative, and he loves you so that you can change. What empowers change, what makes us desirous of change, is this experience of unconditional love. The resurrection of Jesus Christ doesn't simply challenge us, challenge our minds, but it's also an extraordinary gift. And in such, then, the biggest failure among us, the biggest sinner, the biggest screw-up, the biggest failure gets the biggest resurrection gets to see this gift in all of its glory. This doesn't only challenge us, it's not only an extraordinary gift, but it's a whole new way of life. He tells these women, do not be afraid. Why were they scared? Well, aside from the violent earthquake and the angel of the Lord who's rolled back this enormous stone and now is sitting on top of it, aside from that, why are these women scared? Wouldn't they understand what this means? Wouldn't they now get it and understand the significance of what is going on and that their lives would never be the same, that the whole world would never be the same? Wouldn't that be enough to terrify you? These women wouldn't have been so terrified if they'd merely had this heartwarming spiritual experience. They wouldn't have wanted to run away in panic because they simply now assented to the truth of the resurrection. They would be terrified because they have to answer the question for themselves, what kind of God is this who dies and then comes back to life? And this is why skeptics who disbelieve the resurrection often understands its significance more than us Christians because they're not willing to just glibly confess something so tremendous. One of the difficulties in believing is that the claims are outstanding, they're astounding. And so, of course, when someone says, I'm not ready to believe that, what they're recognizing is this is an amazing, earth-shattering, life-changing event. Matthew 28 doesn't read simply like a happy ending that we're called upon to nod in agreement with, maybe give a nice golf clap. It reads like an entirely new beginning, a new way of being human, a new way of living. 
Eugene Peterson, who you've heard us quote many times as a a pastor and author, and he says, the land of the living is obviously not a vacation paradise. It's more like a war zone. And that's where we Christians are stationed, to affirm the primacy of life over death and to give witness to the connectedness and preciousness of all of life and to engage in the practice of resurrection. You see, it's not just a doctrinal point that we must assent to. It's an entirely new way of life. And therefore, to believe it, to let it in, should be a bit terrifying. But the angel says, do not be afraid. Go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. Don't be afraid. Go. You've bared witness to the resurrection, to the empty tomb. Now go and tell others. You see, there's a response. There's a whole life involvement that, in, that comes from believing the resurrection and allowing it into our lives. The first Christian preachers didn't say, well, let me tell you about this metaphor of resurrection. Let me tell you what a wonderful symbol this resurrection is of good triumphing over evil. So let's now all be nice to one another. Can you imagine the slaves, the poor, the disabled, the eunuchs, the women flocking to Jesus? If it's just, well, this is just what I need to lift me up above my life of grinding poverty and oppression, this nice metaphor. Of course not. They flocked to Jesus because he was real and his resurrection meant something in their daily life. It meant an end to their oppression. It meant an end to them oppressing others. It meant an end to them trying to perform and wrestle God's love from his hands. And instead, he gives it freely and fully. They flocked to Jesus because the first preacher said, we saw him, we touched him, and we know, therefore, that this broken world isn't all there is. That my, my sin, my failure, my disability, my shame, my pain, my suffering don't have the last word. I was working at Katie's studio last night in southeast Portland, and I looked across the river, and up on the hill you see OHSU and Dornbecker Children's Hospital. And I began to think, what is going on in those hallways and in those rooms right now, the night before Easter, the suffering that's going on, the parents who are perplexed because their child has been in a terrible accident is now there. And I've been in both of these hospitals and many others more times than I care to remember. You know what parents want to hear? Do you know what people facing death want to hear? It's not, well, it all happens for a reason. Or maybe your life isn't so great now, but when you die, God will whisk you off to heaven and everything will make sense. No, what they want to hear and what we want to hear in all of our shame and pain and agony and suffering is we see and we hear Jesus saying through his cross and through his resurrection that your pain is real and your pain and suffering is something to actually think about, not to be swept under the rug because once you go to heaven, it'll all be, by contrast, not that big a deal. No, what the cross says and what the resurrection says and what we all need to hear in those moments, not that it completely erases our suffering and completely changes our feelings about pain, but it says that God has entered into our pain, that God 
has suffered with us. That he's come into our shame and our confusion and treats it with dignity. And he wants to do something about it now, in the present. It's not just some far-off dream that if you wait long enough, if you believe hard enough, then life will all make sense. But his resurrection engages us now in that he's putting everything right, beginning now, and beginning with you responding to the resurrection and to the angel's call that says, go, go now, tell the disciples, tell the world what is true about Jesus and that he understands their pain. Join him in the fight against the brokenness of this world with the message of resurrection. Ron Suskind wrote a few months ago in the New York Times Magazine about losing contact with his son, Owen, to autism. And it's this terrible thing that happened. In, he was three years old, and one day he was there, and the next day, almost overnight, he wasn't. No longer present. He was a shell of his former self. Something was going on inside of Owen's mind and brain, but they couldn't access it. He stopped talking altogether. But one night while Owen was sitting on his bed flipping through a Disney book, which he can't read but he enjoyed the pictures, the dad decides to grab, Ron decides to grab the stuffed animal of Iago, the parrot from Aladdin, and one of Owen's favorite, favorite characters in the Disney stories. And he picks up Iago and gently pulls the bedspread back from the foot of Owen's bed very, very slowly onto the floor while Owen is continuing to read his book. And he says it takes him four minutes to get underneath the bedspread without Owen noticing and to crawl his way up to the head of the bed. So snail slowly crawls along the side of the bed and he thinks, what would Iago say to Owen? What would this little villainous parrot say to my son who has autism and only seems to come alive when he encounters Disney characters? What would Iago say? So he pushes the puppet up from the covers and says, So, Owen, how you doing? Now, Iago is voiced by Gilbert Gottfried, so I can't really do justice to the voice. But he says, So, Owen, how you doing? And then he says, I mean, how does it feel to be you? And Ron can see him through the corner turn towards Iago, and it's as if he's bumping into an old friend. And he says, I'm not happy. I don't have friends, and I can't understand what people say. Suskind hasn't heard this voice with this traditional rhythm of common speech since Owen was two years old. He's talking to his son for the very first time in five years. Or maybe it's Iago is. So, Owen, when did you and I become such good friends? He's an evil parrot, a Disney villain, but Owen's talking back to him. And then he hears a laugh, a little joyful little laugh that he hasn't heard in years and years. This human father loses contact with his son to this terrible disease. And if a human father feels such compassion for their child that they'll go to these great lakes, that they'll watch Disney movies over and over and over until the parents know them by heart, 
if a human father will go to that length to regain this relationship, wouldn't the ultimate father, the perfect father in whose image we fathers are made, do the same? Don't we see this story playing out in the Bible of where he creates us as children and loses us to this terrible disease of sin, but then he comes after us? In the incarnation, God is taking on flesh and becoming one of us, and we see this God who is willing to crawl underneath the covers and sneak up on us and say, I'll love you. I love you. I'll do anything to have you. I will die for you. I will give my life to you. I will rise from the dead so that you can rise. And maybe, just maybe, we'll take hold of this resurrection and, and make it our own. And perhaps we'll then giggle. Perhaps we'll laugh a bit along with Jesus as he laughs because he has risen to conquer death and to conquer suffering and to conquer the grave. And we'll recognize that the life that we have lived is not all there is. There is a God who understands what it feels like to be us. There's a God who understands what makes us sad, what makes us afraid, what makes us cautious, what makes us anxious, what makes us cry. But he has taken on all of these things and he has let them do their worst to him and has risen fully to nullify them. So take heart, friends, in the resurrection. Jesus has overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, often these things seem so remote, and I pray that through these simple illustrations, through the way that we think about life and our children, our parents here on earth, that we would begin to catch light, catch wind of what, how you see us and how you relate to us and how you think of us. And Lord, would it cause us to live differently? Would it cause us to love our neighbor to love our spouse, to love the person who doesn't want anything to do with us. And more importantly, most importantly, would it cause us to love you? That in the way that you have taken the steps, the initiative to reach out to us, to give us new life, that we would reach out and receive it. And as we come to the table, let us do that very thing. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.